Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Friday, February 9th. Today, Sun writer Kevin Simpson introduces listeners to an award-winning Colorado writer whose latest novel melds her real-life experience with the state's largest wildfire with the illuminating power of fiction. Before we begin, did you know the Colorado Sun has a mobile app so you can read the news from anywhere? Whether you're on the couch, taking the bus to work, or in the car on the way to the mountains, visit coloradosun.com app to download today. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this day in 1878, John Illiff, the cattle king of Colorado, passed away. Illiff made his legacy in Logan County by monopolizing grazing lands in northeastern Colorado. While his passing was the end of a prosperous era, his widow Elizabeth skillfully managed their holdings, ensuring the family's prominence. Starting with selling supplies to miners in 1859, Illiff expanded his empire by selling meat to railroad crews and fostering good relations with local Native American tribes. Owning over 15,000 acres at his death, he was considered one of Colorado's wealthiest individuals. Before we continue, the Colorado Sun has virtual and in-person events all year long. Join conversations on politics, healthcare, the environment, transportation, education, and much more. Sign up for the free events monthly email so you can be the first in line for registration. Visit coloradosun.com slash events today. Next, our feature story. Welcome to the end of the work week, Colorado. We've got a very special guest today, someone who's been a friend to the sun from the very beginning. Uh, She is a multiple winner of the Colorado Book Award, which is how we first got wind of her considerable talent as we spotlighted one of her novels, The Blue Hour, in our Sunlit feature a few years ago. But when COVID hit in 2020, uh, she was also the inspiration behind a project we did called Right On Colorado. Now she has a new novel coming out, Playing with Wildfire, which also has its roots in the pandemic. I am talking about Northern Colorado's own Laura Pritchett. Welcome, Laura. I am so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, speaking of cool names, how much I love sunlit. That's just a cool play on words. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you a little story. That was one of the first things uh, we thought of when I was... uh, just kicking around ideas with uh, Larry Rickman, who's our managing partner. And I said, you know, we should do a literary part of of this, whatever this venture, whatever we call it. And if we call it the sun, I know what what the name should be. We'll call it Sunlit. But anyway, Laura, before we launch into our discussion, uh, I do want to advise listeners that an excerpt from your book, Playing with Wildfire, along with uh, an in-depth Q&A, uh, will appear in the Colorado Sun starting Sunday. So now tell us a little bit about the new novel. What's it about? It is about Colorado's wildfires. It's a fictional account of the Cameron Peak fire set in the actual towns of Bellevue and Laporte. And the novel takes place over the the season of fire, the summer. And as everyone is evacuating or or deciding whether or not to evacuate, they have to crisscross into each other's lives, you know? And so 
um, any divides that exist between feuding neighbors or political differences, like all that ceases to matter as people get it together to help one another. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drama, there's a wildfire coming, but there's a lot of love and kindness and people seeking peace and uh, health during this time too. So I, I mentioned earlier that the, the book has some roots in the pandemic, uh, which of course overlapped with the, the Cameron Peak fire, uh, which currently I think still ranks as the largest in the state's history at well over 200,000 acres burned. Uh, but tell us how, about how you dealt with this sort of a, a double whammy of COVID and a wildfire for which you had a, a somewhat precarious front row seat. I sure did. Um, 2020 was terrible for so many people in Colorado for all sorts of reasons. Even if you didn't live right next to the fire, my guess is that ash and uh, was landing on your home and smoke. It was hard to exercise. It was hard to go outside. And we were all dealing with the pandemic. It was just terrible. And I happened to live at the base of a mountain that was on the edge of one of the evacuation perimeters. And so one of the sheriff's deputies was often outside with his lights flashing and, you know, helping people off the mountain or directing people. And I, from my window in my living room, I was watching people get off the mountain with trailers loaded full of things and pickup trucks, you know, cram packed with things. And uh, their lights were on even in the daytime because it was so smoky and helicopters were flying over. And um, then wildlife started to appear in all of our yards, of course, because they were escaping the fire and sirens were going by. It was very dramatic time. It was also a really sad time. It was just sad. No one could get outside to exercise or be in the outdoors where so many of us find our solace. And, you know, there's suffering going on. People were losing homes or worried that they were losing homes. And so I was bearing witness to all that. So I started writing because that's what I do when I'm stressed out. I write. That's one <laughs> way into therapy, you know, one way of having some therapy. Um, but I also was writing for a cause, I guess you could say, which is, I do believe fiction increases empathy and empathy is just good for the planet. If if other people, people on the East Coast, for example, or in other countries can understand what it's like to live in the West with that much stress and cortisol and sometimes anger and sometimes grief, it, you know, I think it helps others understand just what we were going through, just as we can seek to understand what they're going through. And you were dealing with COVID yourself, right? Right. So I started writing in 2020 as all these um, fires were, you know, fires and smoke and everything was going on. And then in 2022, I got COVID and it was a really bad case. I, I couldn't get off the couch. And if I did get off the couch to try to get some food or something, I was just exhausted. It took almost a year to feel better, but um, I'm feeling better now. But during COVID, I couldn't do much. And to keep, you know, from sinking into deeper despair, I started putting together this book. I had all, a lot of the writings done, but they didn't, they weren't forming themselves into a book. But one thing I could do on that couch during the, you know, was write and put, put this project together and see it as a project. So. so basically, you'd written all these pieces and now you had this puzzle that you had to kind of assemble. Was that sort of the process? Pretty much. And then I wrote a few new stories to help connect them um, and that sort of thing. But a, a lot of the stories were written in 2020 and 2021. And then I put it together in 2022. 
So I'd like to talk just a, a little more about uh, the process of using fiction to a- address a, a reality. I mean, you could have just as easily, I guess, written a, a nonfiction book. You were wit- you know, bearing witness to everything that happened. Yet fiction allows you, in some ways, to get even closer to the truth, doesn't it? I think so. You know, as you know, I write fiction and nonfiction. I love both genres, and I teach both genres, and I champion both genres, just love them. But there's something about fiction and the world of the imaginative where you can really explore emotions. And to me, that's one thing that fiction can do. Nonfiction can too, to some extent, but fiction can really get into what um, people are feeling at their deepest core uh, in reaction to events. And and that would be hard to do, you know, as some kind of reportage piece. And And fiction to me is fundamentally about emotions and the ways we adapt and suffer and reach out to one another. Um, so fiction was definitely my path here. So in terms of the structure of this book, it's a, a little different um, with the interconnected stories from multiple points of view. And I think you even used the term experimental at one point. How, how did the idea for this approach crystallize in your thinking? And how, how did you then execute the concept? Well, I wanted to tell the story of a community, right? And to do that, I felt like I needed to narrate it from many individuals' perspective in the community, firefighters, fish biologists, uh, healthcare workers, moms, you know, er you know, everybody. So I wanted to tell that story. Um, I also feel like climate change and wildfires and all these really big topics, they're hard to capture in a standard narrative. I love standard narratives. I have a book coming out in July that's a that's a novel told from one point of view, and it's a standard traditional narrative. And I love that too. But this book came to me in fragments of, of you know, different perspectives, different people on the mountain. And as you know, I've written a few books like this where I prefer to tell it from multiple points of view so as to capture kind of the whole truth. You know, it also seems that with nearly all of your books, there's a, a strong emphasis on the sense of place. Uh, what's, what's the origin of that? Well, I think all of us who live in the West know that we are influenced by space and terrain and weather in ways that not everyone in the country is. Um, but, you know, our days are often based about like how windy is it out or or how sunny or, or what conditions are we dealing with. So it's hard to write a book set in the West and not talk about place. But I think I'm particularly interested in place just because of my fundamental core, which is a very much nature person, <laughs> nature writer. I mean, I direct an MFA in nature writing. And I just, that is who I am. And I think it began early. I grew up on a ranch in Northern Colorado and I had six brothers. And I joked that I just would take a book and run outside to escape them all. And so my love of books and my love of nature really came because I would just take off to the back of the ranch and sit near the river and read books and write books and, uh, and so my, they're just deeply connected in my soul, like words and the natural environment. And so I don't think I could ever write something and that wasn't place-based. I just don't know how to experience the world in any other way. Well, you know, something else I found interesting was the idea that you touch on frequently 
in your work of suffering. And there seems to be a specific connection between that idea and living as we do in the American West. That you're into playing with wildfire. Yeah, I do think, you know, there's been a lot written on the epidemic of loneliness in this country. And I think it's a real thing. And then I think it got worse during the pandemic. And uh, and in the West, we are often more isolated. We just live further apart oftentimes. So there is this type of isolation. And then the idea of suffering in isolation is heartbreaking, of course. So what this book, I think, tries to address is the real value, like not imaginative, very tangible, very real value of of reaching out for help and connecting with your local community. There's one short story uh, in the book, one chapter, I guess, called um, Dear Friends I Wish I Had, narrated by this guy named Sherm, who's just really isolated himself and is in despair. And he's so he writes this letter to friends he wishes he had. And then importantly, he actually takes the leap and drives off the mountain to go get help and to connect with people uh, in this tent encampment that's being set up outside of town. And uh, that's important. You know, I just hope that it kind of the book casts an honest gaze at suffering and the various kinds of new suffering that we are experiencing, but also casts a gaze at like how you can get out of that suffering to some extent, at least. Yeah, it's always interesting when we have authors on to to talk with them about the nuts and bolts of getting their work published. Uh, it can be a real battle. And this particular book was not an easy lift for you. Tell us a little bit about how it eventually happened, how this book eventually got to the light of day. Thanks for asking that, because <laughs> I think sometimes non-authors think it's so easy to get a book out there, and it's not. Um but my short story is I had an agent who quit during the pandemic. And so I didn't have an agent. Uh, and I had two books I was finishing. This one called Three Keys, which comes out this summer from Penguin Random House. And then this book, Playing with Wildfire, which is, you know, more experimental and leans into the literary. And I and I knew I needed an agent eventually, but getting an agent is a long process. It takes a you know, up to a year of querying and seeking and asking and finding someone. So I did find an agent and he sold the three keys right away. So that was great. But this book, I knew I just wanted to champion it myself because I hadn't yet gotten the agent. So I sent it to Tory House Press. They're out of Salt Lake City and they are a press dedicated to Voices of the West. And I knew that they would take a chance or I hope they would take a chance on it. And they did. I know that they you know, believe in authors and really support them, especially authors who care about environmental issues and representing the West and its complexity. And so they took it and it's been a real pleasure working with them. Um, so I just have had two very different experiences this past year, <laughs> <laughs> different kinds of presses and and one agented and one not, but um, it's kind of all that behind the scenes stuff that happens that when someone picks up a book, they don't know, you know, all that backstory, but it's it's floating there. Exactly. Well, when all was said and done, you had a terrific novel that's hitting bookstores now, uh, but you've got another uh, number of other irons in the fire and some exciting developments uh, on that front. What else is going on? Well, this novel, The Three Keys, is coming out in July, and so I'll be on book tour for that too. 
Uh, it's weird to have two books come out in one year, but that's just what happened. So um, I'm delighted by that. It'll be a busy year for me, though. Um, and then I'm also finishing up a memoir about growing up on that ranch and the family place and the loss of it uh, recently. And so that is about to be sent to my agent. So I'll keep writing. I'm also teaching um, always wonderful graduate students and um, love that as well. So I'm happily busy. Well, tell us, speaking of being busy, tell us a little bit about the the MFA program in nature writing. That seems like a uh, a pretty specific uh, niche that you've carved out. There's only three in the country that I know of that are a Master of Fine Arts, MFA, in uh, environmental writing or nature writing. And so I think we're pretty unique. We're also low residency, so the students live everywhere on both coasts and everywhere in between. We do have a lot of Coloradoans, but um, you can live anywhere and go, and we meet by Zoom. And um, we're really interested in what's going on now. It's not like so much... Thoreau and Muir and Emerson, although those are wonderful writers, we are really looking at the diverse, quite snazzy, experimental work that's going on right now in fiction and nonfiction. There's a lot going on, and for good reason. You know, climate change is a real thing affecting us all, and a lot of people want to respond to it or witness it or tell their stories or speak to a species they love or something. So um, developing and directing that has been one of my great you know, great honors, great joy. I just love it. Fantastic. Well, once again, the, the title of Laura Pritchett's latest novel is Playing with Wildfire, available at fine bookstores everywhere, of course. And uh, again, we're going to have a uh, excerpt, an interview uh, from the book and with Laura in Sunday's Sunlit feature. And by the way, you can also meet Laura in person February 13th at 6 p.m. at Fort Collins Old Town Library and also at the Boulder Bookstore uh, March 7th at 6.30 p.m. And there's lots more information. Uh, Laura's going to be all over the place uh, <laughs> in the next few months. Uh, and you can find out more information at her website, lauraprichett.com. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. What a joy. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. U.S. Supreme Court justices Thursday seemed skeptical of the case for excluding former President Donald Trump from Colorado's presidential ballot based on his conduct during the January 6th uprising. During more than two hours of arguments in the Colorado ballot access case, the panel paid scant attention to whether Trump participated in an insurrection. Instead, most justices questioned whether any state has the power to ban a presidential candidate from a state ballot under the Constitution's Insurrection Clause. The Supreme Court's decision could affect similar Trump ballot challengers across the country, potentially derailing his 2024 presidential bid. It's not clear when the nation's high court will issue its decision. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser this week announced his third settlement in five months, forcing a national hotel chain to change how it does business. Marriott International agreed to stop advertising room rates unless the ads also mention any mandatory resort fees, which can drive up costs by up to $90 per night. Marriott's agreement came even as it denied the practices occurring. Marriott officials said the company changed its misleading rate displays in the first half of last year and is committed to providing clear and transparent pricing. The hotel chain was not fined by the AG's office. 
The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has rejected four Colorado-issued air pollution permits at oil and gas processing sites near Kersey in Weld County. The agency said the state must rewrite the permits to ensure ozone-causing chemicals are burned off before hitting the atmosphere. Environmental advocates say the ruling could impact thousands of other oil and gas permits in Colorado and other states. That's because Colorado's recent ozone failures mean far more drillers must get air pollution permits limiting ozone-causing chemicals. The EPA may now order those sites to test the effectiveness of burning off dangerous chemicals rather than relying on projections. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. This is Michael Booth. And this is John Ingold. We cover health and climate here at the Colorado Sun. Every week, John and I work together to send out a newsletter to our premium members called The Temperature. In this newsletter, we share our latest reporting about health and climate and how they intersect issues like forever chemicals, healthcare's rising costs, and the lingering effects of the pandemic. The Temperature is one of our weekly newsletters available to members at the premium level. To sign up, head to coloradosun.com slash join. Not only will you be able to sign up for The Temperature and our other premium newsletters, but you'll be supporting the Colorado Sun as a member, and thanks for doing that.